VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Pick up the phone, speak with David, get in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 VOCM, which is 8626. So kicking off today in Surrey, B.C. is the 2023 Men and Master Men's Canadian Fast Pitch Championship. And, of course, the defending champions of the Galway Hitmen. Not only are God the Galway Hitmen out in Surrey participating in the Nats, also Physio & Co. representing Newfoundland and Labrador. So good luck to both squads. And we've been checking in on the FIBA World Cup of Basketball. Canada made it through the group stage undefeated, beat France and Lebanon and Latvia yesterday. They, in the plus minus for points for and against, they've outscored their opponents plus 111, averaging 108 points per game. But now things get real. In the opportunity to automatically qualify for the upcoming Olympics, the Spains of the world, Brazils of the world are now in Canada's way, but we've got a fine team there. Mentioned yesterday, you know, Canada's presence at the U.S. Open of tennis, the last Grand Slam on the calendar. And just like that, all the Canadians are out in signal in singles. Uh, finalist in 2021, Leila Fernandez lost yesterday to heavy-hitting Russian Alexandrova. Holy smokes, can she ever hit the ball? And Rebecca Marino. So we're out in the singles. Fernandez continues on to play some doubles, but that's that. All right. Also officially presented and announced yesterday was the upcoming season and some details surrounding the Professional Women's Hockey League. So the first six teams, their version of the original six, Boston, Minneapolis-St. Paul, Montreal, Summer, New York, Ottawa, and Toronto. 24 regular season games. The full schedule has not been released as of yet. So there's one lady that the name pops out, and she is the Senior Vice President of Hockey Operations. That's Jana Hefford, of course, uh, Canadian International. She was here not so long ago participating in the Delaney Hockey Camp for young girls. So good luck to that league. They've had the ups and downs. They've tried it several times. Very little money kicking around, but there's some pretty good horsepower and heavy hitters behind it. On the board of directors included sports executive Ilana Kloss, Los Angeles Dodgers President Stan Kasten, Senior Vice President of Business Strategy with the Dodgers is uh, Royce Cohen, and Billie Jean King. And of course, when you talk about tennis, then the overlap with women's pro hockey, Billie Jean King is a big deal. It was back in 1973 where Billie Jean King participated in the Battle of the Sexes. So there was a former men's number one named Bobby Riggs. At this point, he was like 55 years old, bit of a playboy, and he challenged a bunch of the women's players to take him on. And so first off, Margaret Court said, okay, I'll play you. And Riggs went on to beat her 6-2-6-1. Billie Jean King had rejected offers or challenges from Bobby Riggs to play, but eventually on September the 20th of 1973 at the Houston Astrodome, 90 million people tuned in. That was the most eyeballs to ever hit a tennis match, men or women's or mixed in the Battle of the Sexes. 90 million viewers. Billie Jean King beats him 6-4, 6-3, 6-3, takes the $100,000 winner-take-all prize. Between that and the introduction of Title IX in the United States, it really led to a big boost in women participation in sports. So it used to be there was a huge disparity between the pay pool, uh, men and women in tennis in particular, and now these days, parity. So at the U.S. Open in the singles, the men uh, singles champion and the women single champion take home the same amount of money, $3 million for the champions. So Billie Jean King in the news. Love that. Okay. 
So, out of Marble, great story this morning. I know the folks, I don't know them personally, but I know the folks that are heading operations at Marble are really trying to introduce some more year-round activities. Of course, there's been lots of controversy surrounding them somewhere close to or around a million-dollar provincial government subsidy for operations at Marble. So now they're using the chairlift, their speediest chairlift, generally the speediest chairlift, uh, to bring people up on the mountain to have a, uh, enjoy the view. I mean, it's spectacular. If you've ever been skiing at Marble Mountain or have ever made your way to the top of Marble Mountain, it is really a spectacular view. So they're using the chairlift. They're calling it the chairway to heaven. <laughs> I like that, the chairway to heaven. So which leads me down this road, you know, Marble, not only do I think it's not unreasonable to subsidize a ski hill, I know I'm in the minority, but there's a lot of businesses. If it, the ski hill goes away, so do a lot of jobs in that part of the province. But Marble was part of the Green Report. And I know the news cycle works and moves at breakneck pace. Some things get lost in the shuffle. They grab all the headlines for a little while, and then they're lost. And no one thinks about them, talks about them ever again. But let's remember, the province was saying that the Premier's economic recovery team and their work under Moya Green would be the economic blueprint for the province. It's been in the hands of the government and disclosed to the public for quite a long time now. I can't remember exactly when we got our eyes on it. We had Moya Green on this program. And Marble, of course, is one of the issues that Moya Green and her team pointed to, to for the province to divest. Now, Moya Green's track record in privatization is well understood, whether it be the British Mail Service and what have you. But what happened to this economic blueprint, the guiding principle of economic recovery, including Marble, including the Newfoundland Labrador Liquor Corporation? That's the one that gets some attention and people roll their eyes and say, well, why would we ever divest of that? Because it returns some $200 million-ish to the provincial coffers annually. But the return of the province doesn't go away. I mean, there's still an excise tax, and there's whopping big taxes on liquor products in this province. So what about the NLC? What does it mean for jobs and the amount of money people will be paid to work in the liquor business? What does it mean for competition? And I know liquor is a scourge in many parts of society, but it is part of that report as to what we should or could be doing with it. Add to it bull arm. Add to it motor vehicle registration. And I think the big price tag one comes with our oil equity positions. It was also recommended by the team to fully divest. You would imagine that comes with a huge number. So what was once the be-all and end-all, not because I said so, but because the province said so. And now what? What's had been advanced? What has been advanced, period, on that front? There's no need to panic and sell everything off in a fire sale. It's not the arcade in Mayor Murphy. But it soon would be time to you know, get an update. What exactly has been done with that report? Are there any wheels in motion regarding any of the recommendations coming from? But anyway, you want to take it on. Let's go. We're also told there will be an update today at 1 p.m. VOCM News will be there. Minister Andrew Parsons is going to give us an update on the proposals, the projects, and the wind, the hydrogen, ammonia. We knew it was coming very shortly that the announcement for the next companies to proceed with their plan. There's all kinds of evaluation, whether it be environmentally and or their business model, the opportunity to raise capital. But that update is coming today. And if you're in or out, especially the World Energy GH2. It's still not surprising, but it's interesting that it gets all the attention. I mean, there was a couple of dozen proposals, but the one people hang their hat on as the be-all and end-all, the project that re receives the most scrutiny, would be on the Port of Port Peninsula. We've received an email blast from several people in that region talking about their ongoing concerns, questions yet to be answered. We will indeed invite the company on again to talk about it. So if you want to put some of your concerns in our ears, you can do it live on the program. 
today. And we see, you know, in the world of energy, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro is now considering a new diesel powered turbine. We were long told that one of the rationales behind the development of Muskrat Falls was to avoid Quebec and to decommission Holyrood. So now they're talking about some sort of replacement capacity. There's three options that have been presented, 150 megawatts, 300 megawatts, and 450 megawatts to mimic what is the output at the Holyrood Thermal Generating Station. They were talking about closing that facility by 2030, but without any backup power or peak power to meet demand, it was never going away. So now they're talking about potential to build this plant. We don't know where. We don't know for how much, but I suppose with three capacity options being presented, a price tag is not necessarily coming anytime soon. But that's in front of the PUB. Then you've got what we don't know what the federal government will look like or what party will be in power, what policies it'll have in place. But at this point, we're talking about a net zero emissions commitment by 2050. What does this mean? with the construction of this new facility, which will take about seven years, and let's say they build it to replicate Holyrood's output. How do we hit that? Because if Holyrood went away, and there was some other so-called greener option, and everything's greener than Holyrood, we would have been at about 98% of power generated by renewable resources. So there's a lot to consider there. Not a whole lot of information to uh, include in this story at this moment in time, but inside a cost-benefit analysis. And they say there's going to be a forecasted increased demand. We were also told that with Muskrat. So is that demand because we think that some of these big plays, whether it be in mining, is coming to pass, or the transition away from home heating fuels, or how are they using this forecasted demand in electricity. So we'll see if we can get Miss Williams from Hydro on in the near future when we get a few more details to add to that conversation. And talking emissions, emission control, and cost, when the Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeling was in Argentia a couple of days ago, you know, looking at the whole wind, hydrogen, pneumonia play for pattern energy and the port, you know, asked directly about a letter from Premier Fury about some of the increased costs for fuels. We all know what the carbon tax has felt like. You know, when we were on the, provinci uh, the provincial-only carbon tax scheme, all the money went to the government. Now, with the federal scheme or the federal carbon tax structure in place, there is indeed a quarterly rebate. doesn't cover all people's uh, costs. And, of course, upfront costs, rebate, still makes an affordability issue part of it. Adding the clean fuel regulations and, you know, sitting in this chair and hearing what I hear, not only live on the air, but off air and via email, the concerns are maybe not coming home to roost in full quite yet about home heating fuels. You know, there's been conversations about how much you have to order because many of the truck drivers are subcontractors, and they, to make it worth their while, they need you to order X number of liters of home heating fuels. But with the carbon tax inclusion, it is going to be a problem. When the wind blows and the cold comes and the snow flies, we know what it costs to heat our homes if indeed you were on oil-fired heat in your home. So that carbon tax issue and all the implications, which are still very hazy and unknown regarding clean fuel regulations, it's fine for the Deputy Prime Minister say, to say that she takes them seriously, but taking them seriously and actually acknowledging what would be an unaffordability issue for a lot of people. You know, I can't remember exactly how many homes, some 40,000 maybe, on uh, oil to heat their homes. So, yeah, take it seriously is all fine, but anywho. All right, I think we're anticipating a call from Jeff Loader, who's the Executive Director at the Association of Seafood Producers. Amazing stories out there. We know it's been a chaotic year, implications for cod harvesters and the rest, but the stories about the plant workers 
you know, being referred to in some corners as, you know, the linchpin of the industry and some people are calling them heroes. But the amount of work they put in is extraordinary. You know, let's just say out at uh, Quinlan's operations, Bay Divert, 10 million pounds of crab processed per week. There are stories out there where people have not had a single day off since May. And one person quoted in the news stories had four days off since May. All sounds fine, and I'm sure they'd be quite pleased with their paychecks, but of course, awful lot of overtime gobbled up by the tax man. But that's unsustainable. You know, great. They're going to get through it. It looks like every ounce of the total allowable catch is going to be landed and processed. But not a day off since May. I mean, because that's pretty difficult work in pretty tricky circumstances. So, yeah, I mean, it's fine to applaud them. And we'll get an update from Mr. Loder today, not only on that, but a variety of issues inside the processing sector. And if you want to put some questions in my mind for Mr. Loder, we can do it. But contrast that story with every now and then when I bring this up, and the pushback is very emotional, is when we talk about some companies that have figured out a way to achieve and offer their employees a little bit of a better balance in life. It's not about not wanting to work, but work is all-consuming for many of us, right? My day doesn't end at 12, I can guarantee you that much. But contrast the plant workers no days off since May and other companies with improved productivity, efficiency, profitability when they have a four-day work week. Don't get mad, but if you want to take it on, let's go. All right, a couple of before we get to the news, or the your call. So a week from today, back to school. And this is the last full week of the summer holidays for those involved in the K-12 system. So we wonder about preparations and the number of teachers that will be in place or not in place come next Wednesday. There's going to be some questions about what we see in the community. And again, don't be afraid because we talk about uh, information and data, but be aware. You know, air quality, even in this building, and it's not, everything's not just about COVID. Airborne problems are bad for all of us. Common cold, different respiratory illnesses, and yes, COVID, and it's out there. The wastewater data across the country is very clear. So when you see forecasts on, because this is the problem. When we walked away from a very well-understood testing regime and reporting, now the numbers are very much in the world of guesstimates. Wastewater has been a fairly accurate predictor, uh, predictor of where COVID is and how prevalent it is. There are some guesses that there's about 7,900 to 11,000 active COVID cases here in the province. There are concerns with hospitalization in several parts of the country. So again, you know, it's fine to want, and look, I, there's nobody wants it to be over more than me. So it's just a matter of understanding what is ex what exactly is actu actually happening out there in the community. So. That air quality issue, it would be nice. They're not just about the Frank Farber's Junior Highs of the world, what have you, but we should have a rotating schedule of air quality testing in school, right? I'm sure many private businesses would be well served with doing it in their own buildings, but in school, you know, when we add in the number of days lost and snow days and PD days and chronic absenteeism, it'd be nice to know that we're doing all we can to provide a healthy environment for the kids while they sit in school. So if you want to take it on, we can do it. And there's some... Wet weather in the forecast for the southwest coast. We're going to read a story today regarding Fiona, and we'll keep an eye on what's happening in Florida. It looks like it might be pretty dangerous in the Big Bend. But the Fiona Donations Management Committee, after a couple of months of reviewing applications of it for assistance, 257 applications were submitted from Cape Ray all the way to Burgio, and now they're saying that the monies will start flowing by, the, by next month sometime, which will be a year after post-tropical storm Fiona. So if you're in that part of the woods, you know what to do. We're on Twitter. 
or VOSM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOSM.com. All right, when we come back, we're going to kick it off with Krista Diamond. And we really appreciate Krista making time again th- today. We ran out of time yesterday. She's the daughter, Pauline and Randy Diamond. Of course, that's the story from uh, Catalina. Three years of kicking it around with the government, and now they're going to court. We'll hear from Krista right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, the Diamonds lived in their home in Catalina for almost 40 years. Three years ago, they decided, for a variety of reasons, to sell and to move on to maybe an accessible apartment. Lo and behold, they found, as you've heard many times before, the home sat on Crown land. Now they're scheduled to go to court to fight the provincial government on this Crown land issue coming up in in October. Join us on line number three is Pauline and Randy Diamond's daughter, Krista. She is here. Good morning, Krista. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing pretty good with the circumstances, I guess. Um, right off the bat, it's amazing to me that it takes just one story like your family's to really kickstart and reinvigorate a conversation surrounding Crown Lands. So now that I don't know if they've ever heard me say it, but I've referenced your family and this Crown Lands issue many, many, many times. Is that helpful for us to be talking about it like that, or has it had a negative impact with, uh, on your family? It is helpful. The media has grabbed this and ran. Like, people need to take this seriously. They need to contact Crown Lands to see where they stand. Uh, So many are in the same boat, and they have no clue. So, like, if they go online and check the map that is provided, I check it daily. This map shows a big, huge portion of Newfoundland in bright green. Crown land, crown land, crown land. There's some quieting in the titles, but the majority of it is this. And I know of um, like probably 18 to 20 people in this area that is now facing the same thing. Like there's not, pub, the public needs to make a big outcry to the government for this. This needs to be handled. So after almost 40 years living in the home and the survey was done, there's proof of purchase of the land, you've been paying taxes for years, still the government says that's not enough proof. What exactly are they asking of your family? Oh, well, okay, so to start, um, we now have proof that the land was owned and lived on or used for the last 100 plus years. So we have all the documents. We have, let me see, we have the te- we have a map that shows the land belonging to the Keogh family since 1918, and that's their, the government's own records. The proof of a hundred back to a hundred years is the government's own records. We have deeds from the Keoghs, um for from the 1980s. Affidavits confirming the use of the vegetable gardens that was there for 60 years before mom and dad built the house. Uh, We have aerial photography that shows and proves the gardens was also there since 1940s at least. Only because that's as far back as the photography goes. Mom and dad has paid surveyors to do a report confirming that there's visible use of land since 1940s. We told all of this to the politicians, but it has yet to solve their problem, sadly. Like, it's crazy. All of this is not, has not been sufficient to get the Crown land to back off. So why are, they, why are the government so insistent on this? We have done nothing wrong, and all we have learned about the history of this land indicates that there was absolutely no reason to believe that the government ever had an issue with my parents' ownership of that land. 
they pay taxes for over 40 years. I'd like to know why, if their name isn't on the ownership of that property, why were they paying taxes for 42 odd years? It makes zero sense. It's hard to see how this is in the public's best interest. When we talk about big commercial entities or industry coming to town, you know, buying or leasing Crown land, absolutely, the government has to do their due diligence. There's no doubt about it. But the impact on any front with your family home on that plot of land in Catalina, this really does beg the serious question of why is this being considered in the public's best interest? Has the government put a price tag on this plot of land? They won't even offer to sell. And the thing is there that kind of really upsets me and really gets me my mouth is that for years they had my parents drove to buy the property that my cabin in the middle of the woods sat on. They phoned many, many, many times over a two-year period. We were paying the rent. It was like $99 a year for 99 years. Or you could pay to buy the land for like $2,400. So they had mom and dad crucified basically to buy this land. So mom and dad bought the land and that was it, never heard a thing after. So they can drive my parents nuts over a piece of land that a cabin sits on in the middle of the woods, but yet they didn't recognize or didn't attempt to tell my parents that they didn't own ownership of the land that their property, that their home dwells on. It makes, it, it just doesn't make sense. You know, the, in, the impact will be similar for families facing this particular issue. And over the course of three years and your mom into a four-year fight with cancer, yeah. I mean, I, I know that, you know, the frustration, the cost, and the worry and everything that for every family who's facing it. But what, has, what have you seen it look like so far as impacting your mom and dad? Oh, my God, Patty. It is absolutely heartbreaking. My mom struggles daily. Um, she's terminal stage four cancer, um, undergoing chemo and stuff for the last four years, four plus years now. Um, my dad is affected by it because he's watching my mom go through all this and yet they have to go through it knowing that that's not a big, that's not the only big weight they have on their shoulder. Now they have this house and this property that they built that's our family home. They didn't want to leave that house. That was our home. They loved it there. They built it with their hands. Like, they didn't have someone come to it. They built it. So to see that they're basically now saying, well, that means nothing to us. We do not care about what's rightfully yours. And they'll sign over land to other people that's crown lands. I've heard stories of them signing it over for a song. Very, very little, and yet they can't offer my parents this and expect them to go through this big, lengthy, expensive trial. And I mean, it's the only option we have. Like, we have to fight. We have to fight. We have to give it our all. My sister and myself do everything we can to try to help, but it's it's never enough for the government. Where are your parents hoping to go when this gets settled? Um, my parents are hoping to get this settled, get their house sold because there's a family living in it. They sold their home and moved in there with the intentions on it was going to be back. Um, and they're in the same boat also. But like my dad and mom, this has knocked years away from them. It's a fight that's very unnecessary. 
and it should have been handled in a different manner. Like the fact that they'll sit there and say, no, we have no proof that that land was occupied before. That was always current land. But yet a quick Google search can give you proof that that land was occupied for years and decades and decades. Over the course of the uh, four decades that the families had that home, so every year or every two years, I guess, out in Catalina, when you get your municipal assessment, which then gauges your the amount of property tax you pay, has there been an assessment flowing regularly that includes the value oh, yeah. of the home and the value of the land? Yep, everything. Right back, like they've had everything. They've got all the proof. They've got everything they need, and it's just it's not good enough. It's never good enough. And here, a government official who should be there to help people look and say, you have no proof and we have no proof that this land wasn't occupied. They have our proof. You can get it online. It's public knowledge. But they just, it's almost as if to say they're too darn lazy to get up and look and actually try to help somebody. And I hate to say that, I'm not targeting anyone in particular. Like, I mean, we have Craig Party, who's absolutely amazing. He is helping my parents day and day. Like, he is immaculate. Greg French, liar. He is amazing. Art Windsor, the realtor, he's amazing. Like, but nothing anybody's doing is good enough. For some reason, I think it's amazing. And they just look at us and say, oh, well, <laughs> oh, well. Right? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's very, very gut-wrenching. Uh, you know, back to a comment you made earlier about going to the province's website and looking at the land use atlas, I'm guessing that their obstinance here is because there are so many families, dozens or hundreds or thousands maybe, that are sitting on a piece of crown land, and if they gave it to your family for nothing, that would be the precedent, and then, of course, they'd be giving it away to everybody. And maybe, just maybe, that's not a bad thing, because if we will be very you know, uh, very cautious with commercial and industrial applications and maybe a little bit more understanding uh, surrounding uh, people or individuals who had no earthly idea. And even when some of these deals were done, whether it be 1983 when your folks bought that home or bought that land, to not even know what you're getting yourself into upon uh, point to purchase also really complicates this for me. Uh, Krista, anything else you'd like to say this morning? Um, yeah, we do have a petition. I would like it if people could go and sign it. Um, it's just something like for us to prove that like there's many people who's in a situation doesn't want to be in this situation, and hopefully this will all go through and work and everything is fine. And my mom and dad's situation can help many more people. I I'm really really hoping that it do. I mean it's it's obviously heartbreaking that they have to be the ones to do this but someone's got to do it and it's got to be done so if anyone wanted to go to either my mine or my sister's social media and sign it my facebook is krista diamond lane my sister's is penny kennedy and her twitter is kennedy underscore penny 82 i appreciate the time krista say hello to your parents for me thank you i will sure well thank you for having me take care bye-bye yeah, now there's questions about, you know, whether it had an agricultural lease when she made comments about gardens and stuff, but that's a little bit besides the point. 
if they had no earthly idea that they were putting a home on a piece of crown land, had been paying taxes based on municipal assessments uh, year over year for four decades, is this not pretty fundamental stuff you know no question the problem here is that there are so many different families that will find themselves in this exact circumstance so if the government bends over now or if the government capitulates now that will mean they'll have to do it for everybody which is not necessarily the wrong thing but when we don't even have a price tag to consider you know it's almost guaranteed that the legal bills will be more than the value of the land so anyway let's keep going quick one before we get to the break let's go to line one ed you're on the air hello how are you this morning okay how about you I'm not too bad. Um, there was an incident yesterday around, well, I'm going to say around 6.20 last night at a retail store in West End. Um, it's in it's in St. John's, but technically it's right next to Mount Pearl. And apparently four, I'm going to say, I'm going to say teenagers. They're, I'm sure they're 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 younger than they're they're younger than 18, but they're definitely over 14 years of age because of the height of them. These four individuals walked into this retail store yesterday, and for some unknown reason, I don't know if it's some type of uh, this. Uh, I, I know there's stuff going around in some of these schools out in Mount Pearl, hazing stuff and stuff like this, and pranks and stuff. But in this case, apparently, I don't know if it was one or two of them, of the four, they caught two T-shirts on fire in the store. T-shirts on a rack, T-shirts on their back, T-shirts on some unsuspecting shopper? No, no. T-shirts belong to the store from the racks. Okay, so they picked the T-shirt up and lit it on fire. Okay. Two T-shirts, not one, two. Okay, two. Needless to say, the staff was like, it was all on video. These particular individuals are known to uh, the store. They harassed stores up in that location multiple times yesterday. Um, one individual, I don't know him, but I know I've seen him before, and the amount of foul language coming out of him is absolutely insane. You've never heard such a thing. Like, I don't know what the kids are taught this year, nowadays, but, I mean, what come out of his mouth was... It was concerning to absolutely everybody in the store. The smell of smoke was a concern about everybody in the store. And, I mean, they, they lit uh, stuff they didn't own on fire, even if they did own it. I mean, lighting stuff on fire in the store is all crazy enough. Are the police involved? As far as I know, the store has contacted police. There is major video going on because I know that store has new cameras and very good quality pictures, too. So they, they apparently know who these individuals are. They're known to the store. They're also probably known to police, apparently. But, I mean, you know, when, you, when you're when you going in shopping and looking at stuff, the next thing you know, you have somebody screaming and yelling, swearing curse words and all that, and you have no idea what's going on. The next thing you know, you smell smoke. Needless to say, pretty well most customers were very concerned, very upset, and very distressed. Me, I was pissed. I was like, who are these little idiots? Like, really? Little hooligans. Well, hopefully with the CCTV footage and the fact that they're known to the shopkeepers and the general area, if the police are involved, it should be fundamental enough or easy enough for the the youth to be found and charged and dealt with. Uh, you know, I, I, sometimes I think today's youth gets wrapped up in a bad rap scenario when, in fact, I know full well when we were kids, there was lots of foul-mouthed little sailors running around as well, but that 
imagine going into a store, taking something off the rack and lighting it on fire. It's bad enough when you steal it, but lighting it on fire in the store is dangerous, it's ridiculous, and it's a crime. Uh, Ed, I appreciate the time this morning. Hopefully they're dealt with. Well, I hope they're dealt with very well. Now, if this is some stupid prank going on, because me and you know there's something on the go with schools and some type of hazing stuff going on too, but if this is some type of social media prank going on, I'm going to tell whoever's out there, you better stop it now because you're going to get yourself in a whole pot of trouble real quick real fast yeah well if i mean if it's a tiktok challenge it's vastly different than pouring a bucket of ice water over your head for uh, awareness of a disease what was that was that an ms awareness campaign maybe i can't remember and then you know there's eating tide pods and all the rest of it it's all stupid enough but uh, challenges to commit crimes like that is less than helpful to say the very least one of the uh, distinct downsides to social media ed i'm off to the break but i appreciate the call yeah, I hope I, only, I don't. I hope I don't come across this again or even hear about it because this is like ridiculous. Tis that. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, bye. Okay, bye, bye. Right, let's take a break. When we come back, the CEO of the Diamond Group of Companies is Carl Diamond. He's in the queue. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to the CEO of the Diamond Group of Companies. That's Carl Diamond. Good morning, Carl. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's bad. Thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm doing really good. Okay, let's get to the brass tacks. So the announcement was back at the in 2021, and it's been a long hurdle with a bunch of issues to overcome and liabilities to be settled and insolvency cases to be put uh, dealt with. But when it came to paying off the liabilities in the neighborhood of $1.1 million, I'm curious what your relationship is with this gentleman, Matthew Popple from Saskatoon, who hit it big on the lotto. How did he become an investor in this, and what's the status of that relationship? How did this happen? Well, what we do is we have these investment pools that we go to, uh, different private equity firms, different um, portfolio managers. They all know each other through the Bay Street days or the Wall Street days and stuff like that. So I don't know the man personally. I only knew of him, his name, a couple of weeks ago. He didn't know who I was. It was just normal course of business for this kind of stuff. Our managers go out and they find the right investment at the right time, and, and those investments always have caveats and stuff with them. And like, I can't take money for an airport and, and build a bakery. So it's a, there's no relationship there other than he's, he you know came in and invested in our business, just like hundreds of investors do. Uh, there's nothing sensational about that so the ability to cover these liabilities only came to pass two weeks ago no 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 we've been working on stuff for years no but i mean securing the money because you say it was only two weeks ago that this business arrangement was struck so i guess the question is is that the only bit of money you've been able to secure oh no we've uh, we've had this secured for a long time i just haven't known his name until a couple weeks ago yeah. So in the world of so, so-called traditional lenders, you know, Mr. Popple with his $55 million lotto winnings will be interested in investing his money as he can do whatever he sees fit with his own cash. But where are we with the next $200 million? Because that's some of the numbers that have been pledged, whether it be for uh, upgrades at the airport itself, the buying hangars to in- incentivize more commercial traffic, the whole cargo drone business. Where are you with securing the next $200 million? How quickly can you think you can proceed? Oh, I think we can proceed really fast. We've raised a lot of money in the last little while. Like, our portfolio managers are fantastic at finding the right kind of investment. So we're not worried about the money at all. We've 
secure different tranches, what we call tranches, first 5 million and 20 million and 50 million and 200 million. So we're not worried about that at all. So the money is, is on hand? It is on hand, yeah. We're, what's next? Well, we're gonna we're changing out the sign as you see on some news outlets now. We're changing the sign out today or tomorrow at the airport. We have the um, she put over the old sign, so right now a, a gentleman in Stephenville is designing that sign for us put up next day or so uh, we got vehicles coming in the next uh, next week or two weeks depending on supply chain issues there and then we have several hangars that we're putting on the airport for equipment storage for planes for Q400s 737s uh, so those are going to create jobs to actually get those installed over the next couple of months before the winter who are your partners with the construction of these or manufacturing of these Hercules drones? Because they would be the biggest in the world. I don't think there's anything quite like them out there at this moment in time. 117 feet long, 80 feet wide, can carry 52,000 pounds. Who are the entities behind it? So we have a design team that we hired from various uh, aerospace manufacturers over the years. Some guys have 25 to 30 to 40 years experience with these uh, aerospace companies, when they retire, they come with us. So we put together a really good team that's able to design these uh, more than anyone can put together on a, a Google search and stuff like that. Like this is like a, an actual aerospace program we've developed uh, based on you know their experience uh, in this uh, in this industry. So, of course, in putting together your business model, all things included, operation of uh, as an airport, the drones and others, is there a purchase agreement in place for these types of drones? Because I'm sure people lending you the money would like to know that you're not just building something, you have a market for said product. That's right, and there is a market for that product. Um, we don't uh, go out and solicit orders for these yet because we're still in the design phase of them. There's a certain uh, criteria within that program where we're able to go out and give a customer the, the right rendering and the right capacities and the max takeoff weights and all that stuff. So we're not there yet in that in that uh, program. What we do is we know how big we want it, we know what we want to be able to carry, but then that has to be aerodynamically and physically sound so that if we're say we're gonna carry 52,000 pounds, we're not gonna build something the size of a Cessna and say, well, we can just stock everything in there, every nook and cranny. This has to be an aircraft that has to go through a wind tunnel testing, uh, testing on the computers and all that stuff to be able to make this a viable aircraft. So the proof of concept not yet fully in place. Uh, it is at some point, but that requires all the testing. There's lots of buzz in that part of the province and the potential for some uh, economic upsides to come to pass, whether it be with the wind, hydrogen, ammonia, which would have a lot of jobs and maybe a lot of uh, commercial activity in and out of Stephenville International Airport. That said, you know, one of the big players in the business world in this province for a long time has been John Risley on a variety of fronts. Do you have a formal relationship with Mr. Risley? Is he involved in investing in this airport purchase? I do not have a formal relationship with Mr. Risley at all. He's, uh, him and Mr. Lease and Mr. Paddock are tenants on the airport right now. Um, I would love to have a better relationship, and we're going to be good neighbors, but he does not have any investment into the airport at all. What are his assets in the area or on the property? I don't think he has any assets on the property right now. Uh, he has an office in the airport terminal. Um, we uh, we lease an office space to them, and there's laydown area on the actual apron down on the old uh, defunct runway, the one that's closed down. 
Um, they have some laydown area down there, but they haven't put anything there yet. What exactly has to be done at the airport? Because when you don't have the type of volume of activity, things may fall into disrepair, you know, conversations and awareness with major airlines, or not, not even the major airlines. Maybe Stephenville falls off the radar. So what is actually in play? What type of conversations are you having with the major carriers for expanding routes or bringing new business in or what have you? Well, we have uh, all those major carriers we talk to all the time. Uh, we need to have the deed in hand to be able to, in earnest, be able to say we're ready for airlines to come in. Now, there's always the route development that takes, you know, sometimes two seasons to get into place because they have the stage aircraft, stage crews. Uh, we can't, um, say, get uh, Porter in next week because we said, oh, you can fly in now, we own it. You know, they have to be able to train staff in Stephenville. They have to be able to stage the aircraft so they can come through Stephenville. Then they have to have ticketing systems. There's a lot of to it, and we've been talking to these companies for several years and developing a system where they could come in and do this, but we needed to own it, and we didn't have a time frame for when we would own it. Um, last week was, you know, a week longer than we wanted, but... You know, there's a lot of stuff that happened on this airport that needed to be cleared off before we took ownership. And so everything is settled? Everything is settled. So when it comes to something like an airport, of course, it's an asset. The town may have considered it a liability given the amount of money flowing from the town itself for operations at the airport. And I know this is a private business, but is there any contractual protection for the town of Stephenville regarding whether or not some of these big plans come to pass, whether it be increase in air traffic, whether it be the construction of the cargo drones? If your business model doesn't work out like you hope it does, does the, does the airport revert back or is it for in perpetuity belonging to the Diamond Group? How does that work? It belongs to us in perpetuity. It's a, it's a private asset. It's just real estate, essentially. Um, there's nothing that the town has on there now that they own. It, it's our airport. Uh, it's our real estate property. We want it to be an airport. We think the potential with the hydrogen project, uh, with us alone uh, wanting to bring carriers and stuff in, the cargo drones, our plants up north, all that stuff, like all this comes together where we need a viable functioning airport. So our plans are not to bulldoze and put up 1,300 acres of condos. We want to use this as an airport. Airport's a tricky business. You know, the recovery from the pandemic and even some operational concerns right across the country at some of the tried-and-true uh, airports, whether it be Pearson or Trudeau or otherwise. So does the contract allow, if you cannot make it work as an airport, does the contract allow you to do something other than run it as an airport? Yes, we can. We, we don't. We want to do it as an airport. Uh, there's there's no other plans for us. We want to have scheduled services. We want to have cargo. Uh, we want to be able to manufacture aircraft on this airport. There there isn't uh, another plan for this airport at all. It's going to work. It, it has to work. Like that's the only thing this this airport is is used for is an airport. It's a single-use asset. Precisely what's next, and when can you anticipate that happening? Uh, we, well, we're going to be putting sign-up this week. We have the vehicles ordered. They're all going to have our logos and stuff put on. You'll see them around town in a couple of weeks. And then we have the hangars going up uh, and just already equipment. We have uh, new, like we call GSE, ground service equipment, uh, coming in as well. It's going to be housed in one of those uh, hangars. Uh, then next thing is the jobs and, and the getting the material in to start building the hangars and the, um, and the terminal. How many jobs? How many jobs? 
I'm not sure. I don't want to say right off the bat because it's going to have to be a progressive scale of how we uh, have the job. So I don't want to to give a number of how many jobs immediately, but uh, we're going to need we're going to need all the trades. When are you going to start on the new fire hall? As soon as the town is ready, honestly, like it has to be a criteria has to be met where uh, the land is surveys, all the conveyances are settled on that, and then we have to have a plan of action with the town to be able to uh, meet that. So us paying for the engineering and stuff like that is how we worked it into the contract with the town. Um, so it's really up to the town when they're ready, then we get moving on it. I appreciate your time this morning, and of course, uh, we wish you good luck, because if you can make it work, it's good for the region, which could really use a shot in the arm, economically speaking. You know, and that's really the important thing, is we're looking for a, a generational shift um, in the mentality that when you become of age, you move away to Alberta to work. Uh, what we want to do is we want to have the people in 10, 11, 12 now know that when they graduate from school, there's opportunities. And that, if that's not just airport, that's, you know, uh, renewable energy and stuff that Mr. Risley, Mr. Lead are putting in place in Stephenville. Um, you know, there's one of 25 different trades people can do in that area now. What we want to do is, is take that with the 10, 11, 12s. Then we want to look at the the kindergartners and grade ones, like my daughter's age. We only want them to grow up knowing opportunity. So, you know, we're looking at this from a positive point of view that we can have generations of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians working at this airport. And we want to show that kind of proud history that Newfoundland and Labrador has and be able to enhance that let people stay home, let people raise their families on the West Coast of Newfoundland. I appreciate your time, and I wish you good luck. Thank you so much, Patty. Thank you, Mr. Diamond. Take care. That's Carl Diamond, CEO of the Diamond Group of Companies. Time for a break. When we come back, Pam is there. And, of course, you can comment on what you heard from uh, Carl Diamond. Pam's in the queue to talk about wait times for neurology. And then Helen Forsey is also there to talk about World Energy GH2. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go to line number two. Pam, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Um, I am calling about a not just a neurological appointment. I'm calling about the state of our healthcare system. Okay. I don't think the people in this province understand how serious it is, how serious of a crisis we are in right now. And it's only going to get worse. It is getting worse. We're losing doctors and nurses. And for me personally, I um, in 2020, in June of 2020. I started experiencing some serious health issues, and I called my GP in Port Soie, Dr. Juwani, and and she said, "Sounds like you have MS, or that's MS symptoms. I'm going to send off an urgent referral to you for uh, for a neurologist." And she did. And two months later, in August of 2020, I did get to see a neurologist in Cornerbrook, and he and he said the same thing as her. She, he didn't even listen to my all my symptoms. I was only in there about five minutes, and I know that he. It's probably part of it is because he's overworked. He has too many patients, but he did. He ordered an MRI for me, and I I got an MRI in November of 2020. And he called me and said, "You don't have MS. You have a couple of lesions on your brain, but it's not MS." I said, "What's my diagnosis?" He said, "Stress." So that that diagnosis of stress in that MRI has put me in such a bad position uh, in terms of getting healthcare in this province. So that was in 2020. So in 2021, he was leaving anyway. That left the West Coast from St. Anthony to Port of Asp without a neurologist based based in uh, Cornerbrook. 
so my doctor then, she sent off urgent referrals to Eastern Health. And I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of neurologists in there, so I had hope again. But, nope, I found out. I called uh, one of the doctors in there who specialized in neurology. I, I was on a five-year wait list and, because I already had a diagnosis of stress. So for a second opinion, another five years. This was last year. And my doctor said, you know what, um, she was being upfront with me. She said, if you want to be seen by a neurologist, and she said, and you need to be, this is serious, you need, you're going to have to look at going to the province if you can do it. So I called all the provinces. I called two or three, uh, just Googling it, and uh, I was calling them, and it was the average is two-year wait list outside of Newfoundland to see a neurologist. Some was two to three. So that was a dead end again. Um, my niece in Ontario called everywhere. She did get a, a neurological center that was going to take me, and my doctor sent off a referral. Um, three months later, my doctor gets back, uh, gets message back saying, "Nope, we have too many people outside of Ontario wanting to come here. We can't, we can't handle it." So they dropped me. So now I'm back to square one. So in January, my doctor called me. She was so excited. She said, "Pam, there's they're filling that position for neurology in uh, for neurologist in Cornerbrook." So she's and she said, "I send up a referral for you, urgent referral." That was January of this year. Now, I found out um, within the last month that I called in, in, at Eastern Health. I called in there. I called one because we're all in, as far as I know, we're all in the same queue and wherever you live in Newfoundland for in terms of getting in to see a neurologist. And I called one of the neurologists in St. John's, and they said, there's a two- to five-year wait list. And she said, based on your triage, you're looking at five or more years. So now that urgent referrals have been sent on my behalf since 2021. I have to wait till 2028 and suffer with what these symptoms, and it has ta- it has taken away my my life in many wa- many ways. I'm able to work, but uh, to me that is not acceptable. And I called Cornerbrook Western Health Services, and you know they said no, no, it's not going to be that long. But they checked into it for me, and yes. It is. I had to wait several more years. And how many other people in this province are on a wait list to see a specialist or to get an MRI or other or another procedure, and they're on a one- or two-year wait list or more? That To me, that is inhumane. I've been, I work year-round. I pay taxes in this province, and now I have to leave this province to be proactive with my health. And, I mean, I grew up uh, here in early detection. Uh, we have – not this is just a neurological issue I'm talking about. Um, this may, What damage is, has this been doing to my body? It may be, have done permanent damage. And, and I mean, Patty, it's, it's despicable. It's inhumane the way the people in this province are treated with regards to health care. Our health care system has crumbled – uh, I think it's good. it's beyond repair in my lifetime, and it all crumbled under the leadership of a doctor. We had people in the hospitals. I, I was uh, had to be sent by air ambulance in June uh, to. I ended up in St. Clair's Hospital 
in early June, and I I was there for seven hours, and the things I saw was I've never been to e, uh, emerge in in St. John's. I never thought it was like that. I I didn't know that you have no privacy. You you hear what people are in there for. You hear their meds. Everybody can hear it. There is no privacy. And then it's seven hours later, I I got in to see the doctor. She sent me for a, an X-ray. And it was traumatic. The things I saw walking down, following the green lines, was traumatic. To see all these people, people who dropped off their loved ones who were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, they were on gurneys, like just uh, gurney after gurney. It's, it's like cattle, lined up like cattle. And they were there for hours. I know when this lady was came in and this man came in. It was hours ago. They're in here by themselves. Uh, just on the gurneys, there's nothing that anybody in that hospital can do to make things better. They are running. They are doing their best. That's a will-oiled machine in there for the people they have, but they're understaffed. They're not doing justice to the people in this province. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians deserve better than that. Our nurses deserve better lives, better health uh, working conditions than they have. They shouldn't be going to work for a 12-hour shift as a long shift anyway. But you shouldn't have to go and do the job of not just one person, but maybe two. And then be mandated to stay another 12 hours. And I don't know about you, but if I was admitted in the hospital and I was, I was being administered any medicine at all, I would not want that nurse that's on hour 23 of her shift. I feel that this is such an injustice to the people and I don't think that people realize how serious it is. And you won't until you're in my position or, or a position of thousands of others of people in this province who are waiting for years. And we have just, for some reason, have accepted it. And, you know, um, we're not doing anything about it. We, are, we need Andrew Fury to be accountable to us. Tell us why, how did it get this bad? And you were supposed to be recruiting uh, doctors and nurses. And I know for a fact that we're losing them because of the working conditions. Uh, Deer Lake is in, in trouble because they just lost two good doctors. One of them is a pediatrician. We lost Dr. John Kilty, a GP who has thousands of patients, okay. including my daughter and son-in-law. Right. No, I, I do think, for, I can only speak for myself and what I hear and the people I deal with, but I think the issue regarding healthcare is a well understood, well that's not the right word, it's a well known issue in people's minds, regardless of who you are, even if you are as healthy as a horse as they say, someone belonging to you or one of your friends is in the churn and is on a wait list and is looking for some sort of solution to whatever ailment might be facing them. The wildest thing about all this is there's more doctors and more nurses working in the province than ever before. What we don't know is exactly what these professionals are doing where they are in the system but the wait list that you describe is extraordinary and yes it's unacceptable and no this is not new this problem has been developing across the country for years we haven't had a close look at healthcare in canada for certainly decades when we talk about human resources and how they're allotted and what they do and where they work so it is a crisis i don't think we can uh, use that word as an exaggeration i think that's exactly what it is pam i'm really late for the news but i hope you're doing well i hope you get seen to sooner than that five-year wait time you've been describing Thank you, Patty. Take good care of yourself. 
Thanks. Okay, Pam. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Helen, you stay right there. She wants to talk about the World Energy GH2 project and the three phases of it uh, proposed for the port of port Peninsula. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's go. Line number four. Helen, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me on. No problem. This is, um, I think you got the um, the um, press release that some of us put out, people in Port-a-Port, and, uh, and some of us who are supporting, supporting their opposition their their desire for a full assessment a proper assessment not just the hype from the from the proponent about the um, wind to hydrogen project that's being planned out there what does that mean because inside the world of environmental assessments not a whole lot has changed in this province so what does a more comprehensive assessment look like and who does it well for one thing the the EIS the environmental impact assessment that is, that the province has required for this project is um, is basically it's saying to the proponent, tell us all your plans, tell us how you're going to make it all okay, tell us who you've talked to, and uh, and so they are they're sitting ducks, and the public is sitting ducks for whatever the, whatever spin the proponent wants to put on it. That's what it amounts to. They have the the statement that just came out last week uh, has has old studies. It has a lot of a lot of technical stuff. There, there's 4,100 pages of it. Nobody can possibly go through it in the 50 days that are that are allowed by um, uh, in the process for public public input. And the, the public are not able to access it's at two um, three libraries in the in the area, not all of which are open all the time, not all of which people can get to. It's also online the 4100 pages. I've been looking at it online, the 4100 pages, and I can't begin to assess the um, uh, what their experts are saying. I mean we need we need to be able to have uh, uh, people need to be able to go through and assess it. A lot of the material is really new. Ever since it was posted a year ago, a year ago in June, on um, uh, on the provincial website, there's been no change to it until the the statement came out on August 22nd. No changes at all. So what the Port of Port people have been acting on is is. Um, the information that was posted publicly uh, on the uh, provincial website and other things that have been on the that have been spoken about but not officially recognized spoken about at various meetings that the proponent has held with uh, staged meetings with their expert consultants from Texas and all over the place uh, talking about how wonderful this will be for everybody and there are there are any number of technical and and non-technical questions never mind political questions because the both uh, the, the provincial government is obviously is basically a proponent of the project they are pushing it at every level mr minister parsons whose whose job it is i guess to promote whatever comes up that uh, that somebody wants to do that uh, that talks about energy or green energy or whatever whether it's true or not he's he's right on board but so is the so is the um, the premier now the the environmentalist the Enver, environment and climate change minister mr uh, davis 
is not uh, for obvious reasons, is not allowed to take sides. But in effect, the process has uh, has already taken sides. Uh, so the uh, what is needed is um, an, uh, a full public public review, uh, a public review board like what was done, I believe, for Muskrat Falls, a public review board um, set up by the, by the province to hold public hearings. That would be at the provincial level. But the federal level, because there are so many, there are so many um, uh, repercussions and implications way beyond Newfoundland and Labrador, not just fisheries and oceans, but uh, atmosphere and migratory birds and and just the whole question of is uh, is this kind of project uh, really green or not? Which it's not. I can get back to that. Well, let, let, let's, but, but let's those start. are those are federal questions and a federal environmental assessment, which is by definition the way it's the way it's set up. The federal federal impact assessments are much more detailed, much broader, and um, uh, and much deeper. And they also this is key. They also allow for uh, intervener funding, as they call it. So a group like the Environmental Transparency Committee and others on the Port-of-Port Peninsula could apply for intervener funding to be able to hire their own experts and their own lawyers to not in, not not at the kind of scale that uh, that the company would have, but still to be able to cont- to examine and contest the claims being made by the company. So those two processes, the federal impact assessment, which the which the Port-of-Port people have asked for and won't get a reply on until October because there's been all kinds of delays, bureaucratic delays and things and even getting the process started um, but th- there won't even be a decision until October on that but it's a perfectly valid request for the same reason which is that the, the public and particularly the people most affected the indigenous and non-indigenous people of Port-au-Port Peninsula and, and the Codroy Valley need to be need to be, have the opportunity to go head to head with the proponent instead of the proponent having all the airtime, all the space, all the official uh, uh, support, and uh, and being able to get away with whatever they want. Okay. So is your concern primarily with the presence of the wind turbines? Because the wind-generated wind, uh, power is pretty well understood across the world, and it's, you know, certainly there's major projects right across the world. The difference here, I, I would imagine, would be the concept of using the wind-generated power for the electrolysis and the hydrogen to ammonia for export. So is that your primary concern, is the wind turbines? The the primary concern on the peninsula is the wind, with the wind turbines. As uh, those of us across across the the province have been looking into it in more detail, based on what we what we what we've known from the proponent and from the province, which isn't enough. But uh, as we've been looking into the repercussions of it, we've seen all kinds of other problems with the port at Stephenville, the uh, uh, the the addition of the second wind farm, as they call it, at uh, in the Codroy area, which was not 
than the original proposal. The uh, it doubles the number of of, of so-called wind farms. The pro- the point is the kind of wind far- the kind of wind energy is really important. As they say, the devil is in the details. These details are appalling. This is not a green project. The these turbines are uh, are offshore type turbines, huge monstrous things that have never been put on land before as i understand it they're they're bigger they 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 require all kinds of minerals and uh, and um, and resources no, never mind the uh, the kind of fossil fuel use just to put the things up they're going to they're they're trying to uh, in the environmental impact statement the um, uh, the proponent says they're going to bring in these enormous hundreds of feet long uh, towers and 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 um, what do you call the blades that that circulate by by boat they're not there is not a feasible way to land those things and they're they're uh, pinch hitting to see how they can convince the the public and uh, whoever happens to be looking at 4100 pages in the next 40 40 days or so uh, convince us that um, that everything will be fine and they'll be delivered well meanwhile the 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 delivery um, of them the roads to get them to the place the transport of the construction needed to make the base for them, that all that, never mind once it gets operating, the, all the problems once it gets operating with birds and things like that, and possible noise, possible health effects, all the roads that will be, that will have to be built to have 160, I think it's now 100, down to 150, because they're going to move 150 of these giant wind times right on the little Port-a-Port Peninsula in its most fragile areas that are, that are occupied by, by, um, by wildlife life and plants and uh, and where people hunt and berry pick and and uh, anyway that i'm sorry i'm i'm <laughs> okay i'll just hop in here for a second so i do think that you know i've had a look at the document i'm not a technical whiz but people who i know are much smarter than me that i've been speaking with the timeline for october 11th for public input is extremely tight you know by the time anyone can either reference folks who are actual experts in the industry and or in the concept whether it be environmentally speaking or otherwise that's a very very tight timeline when you talk about green you know for is there such thing as green? Because, you know, people look at renewables, whether it be wind or solar or hydro or uh, tidal. There's nothing actually green. I mean, there are things that are greener than others. So if we're looking for power generation, that is going to I mean people need power. No matter where it comes from, people do need power to be generated from some source. There's no such thing as green, is there, Helen? Okay. No, I would say there is. I think there are ways of doing it if it's if it's community based. If it, there are examples in Europe and even even across our country, where there's community based, community controlled, reasonable sort of human scale. Um, uh, power that is dedicated to providing power where it is needed and where it, near where it is generated. So at least say here on the island or here in the here in the province, which this won't be. This will be shipped overseas. That's right. This is but not domestic consumption. As far as the, uh, the the greenness is concerned, it depends how it's done. If the if in order to 
um, in order to generate electricity, you, you, you have to destroy a wilderness and, and the way of life of a bunch of communities and the wildlife and the, uh, you know, especially of all the places to do it. This is one of the worst. But the, so it's how and where it's done, the scale it's done on, and the purpose that it's going to. But yes, there is green. The other thing, though, and I think you make the point really well, yes, people are going to need energy. But people are not going to need the amount of energy that is being contemplated with the with the, the sort of the main uh, the main thrust of most of what we hear from government and industry is we have to replace fossil fuels with uh, wind wind or solar we have to replace it without questioning whether it might be a good idea to change our lifestyles our assumptions and our industries so that the extraordinary requirements for for energy which we already have and which are anticipated for the future are no longer those are those figures those amounts those numbers are no no longer valid they can't be because if there's a lot of been work been done showing that it's impossible to replace everything we do now with fossil fuels with anything that is impossible it's not that green is impossible it's that that scale of that kind of green is impossible Look, it'll yes. use up all the all the resources of the earth in order to get there and meanwhile we're going to be up. Right, but I mean, there's there's not even technology that's been created at this point to replace a lot of use of fossil fuels and certainly major industrial implications. But when you talk about uh, Muskrat Falls and optimism bias and whether or not there's a need for this type of fuel at the scale it's been pro- uh, promoted, that's kind of John Risley's problem, isn't it? Because well, it's not a domestic uh, consumption. We, we would hope, except that he's going to be raking in all kinds of, of we'd hope it be his problem. And if he looked at it, I think the economics of it, w- without government input, the economics of it alone would stop him from doing it. The economics, uh, the risk, especially if he had to, if he had to uh, provide, what do they call it, a, a surety for anything going wrong or anything like that. But the government is right in there like a dirty shirt. I mean, the, the uh, actually, both governments, look at... Mr. Trudeau coming coming to Stephenville last year. Both governments think this is the bee's knees. They are part. They they are. They think that the the, the mega projects are are uh, are going to solve things, but they're not. And what we want, what what the Port of Port people want, the Environmental Transparency Committee, it's called that for a reason. Uh, what they want, and what so many other people on the on the peninsula and uh, and across the province are saying is. Let's get a proper public examination of this at both the provincial level and the federal level. And the only way that they can extend, the, as, as you point out, the 50-day the comment period, which is partly up already, that is totally unreasonable. The, uh, the way that that can be extended without calling it extending the 50 days is by appointing a, a public review board and having that public review board hold public hearings. That will give time and opportunity, even, though, even if not money like the federal pro- process does, but time and opportunity for people to really study this thing and have their voices heard. I appreciate the time, Helen. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Crown Lands, and uh, Wendy Ennis is the bus driver. We'll hear from Wendy as well. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, let's go. Line number five, Second more to the PC member elected in and serving the folks of Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. 
Patty, good morning to you, and thank you for taking my call. No problem. Uh, I just want to talk about Crown Lands, and it was great listening to Krista this morning, who called um, on behalf of her parents' situation, um, Pauline and Randy, uh, in Catalina. Uh, i just like to say that everyone in the province of Newfoundland would not want anybody pirating land or, or a free-for-all with, with our with our resource. Nobody desires that. But the diamonds are one of many that would be in the courts now who followed all the standards of the day and legally, um, you know, they filed at the Registry of Deeds. Um, they had affidavits of possession proving occupation, you know, of land back to 39. But these are the type of cases where we believe... And I know that our PMR, Plim and Forsey had mentioned our, you know, in the PMR back in May month, that we think it is not in the public interest. And I think you had stated that this morning to bring the people like the Diamonds to court. Greg French in Clarenville would strongly agree as well. And there are many cases lined up similar to the Diamonds that are going through the court system now in in the Clarenville area. So all I would say, I think we've had it long enough that it should have been straightened out by now, the Crown lands. And if we do have to take the time now and the legislation comes in this fall, I would hope that the minister can provide a letter into situations like the Diamonds, which would show that they did follow all the standards legally that was required of them purchasing the property and that they would say that we will waive and dispense our interest in that land to allow the court work not to go. Krista mentioned aerial photo photography. Well, on the diamond land, um, the, the aerial photography would show that the land was occupied. It was fenced. It, it, it shows that... Uh, you know, it, there was continuous usage in all the tracking from that up to, to current. So we're talking about something different than somebody ever trying to squat on a piece of land. This is in an historic area where land has been used hundreds of years, and people did follow what were the rules of the land in order to secure it. And many people think that once they had it submitted to the Registry of Deeds, I think that was a, a belief that most people had, once is in that Registry of Deeds, they owned their land. And all these cases that are before the court, like the Diamonds, only one party is contesting it. Nobody else in the community, no other family members, it is just crowned lands. Yeah, I mean, when Mr. French makes the point, you know, asking the question whether or not this is in the public's best interest, that's a good question. You know, I think we've lumped a lot of crown lands related matters into one conversation when, in fact, not every bit of crown land is the same. Not every bid has the same applications and concerns and government control. Like me applying for a bit of crown land to put a cabin up. That's one thing. Yes. The, the diamond story is... Not unique, but it's vastly different, say, for instance, we just talked about World Energy GH2, industrial and commercial applications using Crown Land. Vastly different conversation. Big corporations, hedge funds, foreign ownership looking for pieces of Crown Land across the country. Completely different conversation. This type of stuff, we'll just keep using the diamonds because that's the go-to headline, the go-to family. 
there is really no argument that makes any sense. If we could want to make it technically about the Lands Act, that's it. This is the rules. We're going to follow it. It's black and white. We can never stray from. There's no compromise, no consideration. Well, then they're going to lose, right? I mean, it looks like that anyway for me. And good luck to the Diamonds and Greg French and everyone else who's uh, contesting the, in the courts. But the problem is, I think, pretty clear to me is that when they have the law the way it's written, and if they concede and they give the diamonds what they want at no cost or some sort of nominal fee, then every other family out there is going to ask for the same consideration and they'll get it. Because government can't, you know, be paying footloose and fancy free depending on media pressure or the diamonds being forcefully outspoken or whatever, because everyone's going to get the same deal. Now, that's not a bad thing. If you can prove what the diamonds have proved, then I don't know why government thinks that's a good idea to drag them through the courts. I mean, the price of that land is not going to be anywhere near as valuable as the cost of the legal fees. No, no, abs- absolutely not. And that's what government is missing. Uh, you know, they're using the public resources to bring the people like the diamonds to court. And the diamonds have got to pay an exuberant amount of money in order in legal fees aerial photography in order to fight the the crown land and for what at the end what what comes of it they're not going to move the house off the land they're not going to they're not going to expropriate the land it, it'll end up with the diamonds but at what cost have we got to put the the people like the diamonds through i uh, adam furlong he, he called on crown land several times in bloomfield he bought the land from the abbots and the Abbott story is a very similar one to the Diamonds. The only thing, it was a transaction of land. But I would say the Abbots lost land, and I would think probably forty to $50,000 was their cost before they moved to St. John's. So there's all kinds of stories that would be out there. And listen, if we clear it up for the Diamonds and clear it up for the Furlongs, if we cleared it up for the Fishers in Bonavista who've lived on their, on their uh, land for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people, the population of Newfoundland and Labrador has no objection to that. And again, I go back to the point, but we all do if somebody is, is, is pirating or, you know, land somewhere because they have no receipts. They didn't follow any standards That's of right. the day. There was no legality. And maybe we should be questioning Crown Lands on how that happens. Where's the enforcement piece? You know, how can we become better to make sure that that doesn't happen and to prevent it? Uh, not this is this is two different scenarios. These people should be given a pass. Take it out of the courts and and let the diamonds um, conduct their business and worry about what they've got to do without having to worry about the crown going after them. Cost is an interesting uh, word to use in here because cost it comes in many forms as well, right? It could yeah. be cost to your well-being, your mental health, oh. your pocketbook. It's everything under the sun. So here's what's missing here also is if people say, well, the rules are the rules, right? And people have to live with it. We can't be just bellyaching every time we don't like something. But the government hasn't even given the diamonds a price tag for what the land would cost to purchase. So without that, how can they even do a cost-benefit analysis in-house and say, okay, here's what Greg French thinks the legal fees will be, and here's how much the land is, and if everyone else out there encounters the same thing, even if we just make it reasonable. You know, uh, today's market value seems a little bit unfair given the fact they bought it in 1983. So if there was a nominal fee, then we get to play by the rules and also be uh, respectful of what is legitimate process entertained by that family and many, many others who are doing the exact same thing. So it doesn't have to be about just rolling over and capitulating to everybody. Is If you can prove what the Diamonds did, here's what the value of the land is today, here's what it would have been worth in 1983, you pay us that and off you go. 
Yeah, and Patty, 100% correct. If I remember now, in the Diamonds case in 83, they paid lawyers. Oh, they yeah. They paid to register. Yep. Uh, they paid the gentleman, the Keel family, for the purchase of the property. They did it all legit. So, like I said, now whether the government wants to take the diamonds and say, you pay for it a second time. You paid for it once. Now, that is a little different. I go back to the spirit of when the um, – back in, um, in 76 – if you ever read Hansard back in 76, and we had some people then, which I think that people would know. We, we had people like, um, if you read through Hansard, uh, Joey Smallwood, Tom Rideout, um, Frank Moores, Minister Rousseau. All these people were clear that the spirit of the bill that they were putting in for the 20 years was just right to make sure that uh, anybody with land got their title. And that was the spirit of the bill. But here we are now. We've got a current government that's gone from uh, 76 to 77 to current. Now you can't find anybody with with, uh, or difficulty finding people to um, provide an affidavit for loan ownership. The value of that now has probably diminished somewhat of the affidavit process and, and no changes. So, uh, you know, uh, and Force, he called it right and said the last uh, setting, when we had the legislative setting, we were hoping to see Crown lands. We tried to do it with the PMR to prompt it up. I would surely hope that it comes up this fall, you know, for debate in the House, and let us have a go at it. But in the meantime, I would call upon the minister, and I've written him and asked him to see that if he can add a letter that would take the diamond situation and similar ones that would be on the Bonavista Peninsula out of court and until the legislation we get it cleared up in this fall, especially with cases that are so sound as uh, as Pauline and Randy Diamonds. Well, uh, it's unavoidable inside the House of Assembly. Why? Because it's going to impact thousands, if not yep. tens of thousands of people in the province. Just look at the land use atlas. It's as clear as the nose on your face. There it is. I mean, there's even parts of the Northeast Avalon which are long been municipally incorporated areas where you wouldn't think there was any such relation with Crown Land. I think we're going to find out the hard way that there is. Uh, Craig, I'm off to the break. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to figure it out, in plain and simple. So a lot changed in 1977, but as the, I mean, every case will be different, but if you just look at what has been demonstrated by this one family in Catalina, if every other family that's in this predicament can do exactly what the Diamonds have done, there should be some pretty fundamental outcomes that do not belong in the court of law. I get the legislation has to be adhered to. There's lots of protections that the government has to utilize regarding protecting Crown land. Is this one of those cases? I don't think so. Let's take a break. We'll go back. Wendy, you're next. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back. Okay, let's go. Line number six, Wendy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking the call. My pleasure. So we're about a week away from school now, and I want, as a bus driver, I wanted to remind people to please obey the rules of the road and the bus stop sign. It's something that I've had issues with before, all through last year, and it was really, uh, I guess, disconcerting. And I've had uh, times where people were two and three times a day or two or three times one trip going through my bus stop sign. Other times uh, throughout the spring, 
when I created awareness, it seemed to slow down. So I really just want people after all summer now to remember it's time again to remember and be mindful of the children. The young children are going to be very excited. They could run out in the road unexpectedly. And the older kids may be, you know, not used to back to school now and tired and have the earbuds in. So uh, you don't know when they're going to step out into the road. And, uh, you know, going to the bus stop sign it is an offense. It is a high fine of up to uh, $500 to $1,200 with six demerit points, and it affects your insurance rate. So I don't know why anybody would do it. But outside of that, the most important thing is the children. I uh, want to, you know, we need to protect the children. It's our responsibility as drivers and as citizens to protect these children at all times. Many people go through the sign. I can't explain why, but you could only hazard a guess that they think they're getting away with it or the children are on the other side of the road so I have clearance or the point of no return. None of those are excuses because this is not a, an Olympic sport. And, you know, even if there are omissions in the act that might come down the road, they it's not a time to look for loopholes. We need to protect the children not look at racing that stop sign. Well, and race is the word, isn't it? Because you said, I don't know why people do it, but it's the same reason why so many out there drag race from red light to red light. Getting over in a hurry, but they just can't resist pounding down on that loud pedal to get to that red light just moments before I arrive at it. So, and just to remind folks, when the school bus stops and the stop sign is deployed and the lights are flashing, doesn't matter what direction you're traveling in, you have to stop. I mean, that, that's just it. And, you know, just imagine, so someone's in a mad rush to get nowhere, and not only the potential to pay $500 or $1,200 implications on your insurance, just imagine trying to live with yourself if you struck and killed a kid. You know, I mean, even if you just ask yourself that fundamental question, people will not maybe pay the fine or maybe not pay the fine. They'll uh, moan and groan about their insurance. But can you just imagine how your life is going to change and the lives of that family is going to change if you struck a kid, hurt them or killed them? Because we're talking about uh, several tons of vehicle hitting a little unsuspecting child. Or it doesn't matter how big the child is. It could be a grade 12 student as big as an ox. So let's just kind of get our minds wrapped around that. It's amazing, though, isn't it? You know, like I've been driving since I was 17 years old. I still have to remind myself about back to school. I still have to remind myself of driving in the wet in the winter because we get used to something. It becomes part of our road uh, approach to getting behind the wheel when, in fact, school back to school is different. You know, in and out of school zones, the winter is different. We just kind of have to prepare yourself mentally to acknowledge that, okay, there's going to be kids around. You know, now they, they spent their time in the parks and in the pond and in the campgrounds. Now they're going to be on the city streets in droves coming up this, uh, this coming Wednesday. That's right. And, you know, the fact is I've seen a lot on my route. It's uh, Portugal Cove Road and Sorbonne Road. And... I am ticketing people. I am getting people ticketed, I mean. And they have been convicted by uh, all the way to court. I will follow it to court. So other bus drivers may or may not. I will. So I just wanted people to know that you know, there is no going through my stop sign. Because it, I would rather, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not police in any way. I would prefer if they made a mistake and they stopped immediately at the stop sign. It's even better than waving at me and continuing through because they say, oops. They're still breaching the act by going through that stop sign. Um, 
Yeah, so the, so the important thing here is that, uh, you know, to be mindful of the children. I also wanted to let parents know. Uh, many don't know that this happens, so they're maybe not, uh, I guess, vigilant on the side of the road. So they, they have a false sense of security in this stop sign. Uh, the older children without parents with them also think that stop sign is perfect. They sometimes just step out, because, and the bus has not even stopped yet. So, um, you know, we need to be extra careful there. I also would like to ask uh, parents on the side of the road, everybody has a phone. They could record every time the bus approaches. It takes five seconds to uh, uh, record the bus approaching. If a car goes through that stop sign, it will be recorded, and then they can take it to the police. Um, it takes five seconds. If nothing happens, good for you and delete. It's so simple. It takes five seconds. If they got into the habit of doing that every single time, you never know when it's going to happen. It's too late when you have to grab your phone after. Yeah, I wonder, you know, what the presence of uh, cameras on the front and the rear of the bus. And you know, I, I often wonder about not only safety as they get on and off a bus, but safety on the bus. We've heard plenty of instances, you know, there'll be some hijinks and, you know, farting around on the bus, but there's the possibility for that to get carried away as well. What do you think we should do in addition to what we already do on school buses? Because the driver should be looking down the road, not in the rearview mirror, seeing what all the kids are up to. So presence of a human monitor or cameras, which won't control everything. Everything. Cameras just catch it while it's happening doesn't pr necessarily prevent it. So should we be doing more about on-the-bus safety? Well, in this case, my issue is outside of the bus. But, uh, you know, oh, yeah, maybe, I know. That is some, maybe that is something that has been talked about for a very long time. And I don't know the stance on it. I understand the safety of the children, but you do have the safety of the bus driver as well. If something should occur, that the bus driver doesn't get blamed. Um, in, in the case of recording, what I'm talking about, we're not recording children. We're only recording the, the, car, the offending car. So, um, you know, you wouldn't know when a child is at their driveway or, or the vision of the pictures of the children themselves. So anyway, I just wanted to create awareness and have people more vigilant and drivers to please, you know, stop anyway, even if it's, even if it's not right to the meter. Just as an example, if somebody goes through my stop sign um, and it took one second on the video, that meant they were out 58 feet from that stop sign. 58 feet is well ahead of my bus. I'm looking at them in the eye. They had time to stop. They had 100, or 100 to 150 feet of caution lights warning them that we are about to stop. That was their point of no return. The point of no return has now passed. The stop sign is out. The stop sign is the red light you have to stop. That you do. Wendy, you have a good school season. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, when we come back, gardening. Perfect. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, get your green thumb stuck up, and let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Dan Rubin. Dan, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing? Best kind, thanks. How you doing? Always fun to listen to you. You're the voice of reason, lost in the wilderness, man. Great. <laughs> uh, Just great. I'll take it. Uh, it's okay. been a great summer for gardening. That much I know. Even my motley little setup has thrived. Well, we've got beans coming out of our ears. I just harvested garlic, and the Newfoundland heritage garlic, I swear, the bulbs are as big as my fist. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to be planting them out, and we have people growing them out for seed. In about another year, we'll have seed stock. That's the uh, the, the wonderful, huge garlic that 
is is a Newfoundland heritage garlic that we've kind of saved from extinction by growing it out and having lots of different people around the province growing it. Yeah, but I've got exciting news for you and for your listeners. I was not able to do my workshops called Creating the Year-Round Garden during COVID, of course, you couldn't have gatherings so instead I put I sat put my butt in the chair and I wrote the book and the garden book that I've written called Sun Seed and Soil Tips and Techniques for a Northern Garden is a true Newfoundland how to garden book it's been published by Boulder Books right here in Portugal Cove and uh, printed somewhere in the Orient or somewhere in Asia, I don't know where, but uh, it's uh, more than 200 pages. Let's see, how many pages does it have? Yeah, I've got a copy here. Uh, more than 200 pages, fully illustrated how to garden in a cold, damp, windy place that we call home. Some of us had convinced ourselves that gardening is a fool's errand in this climate when it's just simply not the case. Now, of course, you're not going to have no, a whole lot of successful backyard farming in the, in the throes of February necessarily, but there are so many opportunities. We've, we've expanded our interest in and gardening that we do, and I think it's becoming super popular, whether it be with downtime in the pandemic, picking up a new hobby or a habit, whether it be with the price of food period. I think we're seeing an explosion, even just in very small-scale backyard uh, gardens and or larger-scale homesteads and backyard farming or what have you, it's really taken off. Well, you know, the group that I helped start here, and I'm sitting in our, our new office uh, up on Mount Sio Road now, uh, has, has really moved ahead. And we did that survey last fall, and we heard from 750 people in 167 communities who documented growing and gathering more than 6 million pounds of food. So you're absolutely right. There's been a huge explosion of interest in gardening. The seed library at the AC Hunter gave away more than 900 packets of seed this year. Amazing stuff. Yeah. I mean, the Food Producers Forum, one thing that I think that has been a really helpful contribution to the food, food security and insecurity conversation is we just really didn't know what was going on out there. We oh, basically no. used retail yeah, numbers. We, the survey. And, yeah. we, had no, we had no concept and the government's doing the best they can, but it's based on insufficient information. So we've gathered this data. We're working on, by the way, we're working on the final report on that. It will be out. It will be public. It will be available. I'll let people know when it's out. We should have it wrapped up and this is all the detailed information about who's composting, who's using greenhouses, how much fish, and so on and so forth. But uh, it was a real shock to to see that figure emerge, 6.2 million pounds of food from just 742, that was the exact number that we we kept uh, the data from, uh, growers, farmers, fishermen, foragers. So uh, I want to invite everybody who has the time to come tomorrow evening to come to the Botanical Garden at 306 Mount Sio Road, we're going to have the launch for my book. And there'll be food and drink there. And uh, boy, I'm sure glad it's done. <laughs> That's all I can say. No doubt. People yeah. are saying I should write one. I don't know if I have the patience to do it, uh, to be honest. Uh, Dan, just for the purpose of wetting a whistle, give sure. us something from your book that people would be surprised to learn about the ability to grow something or other in one season or another here in the province. They might have thought, oh, well, I don't live in the tropics. I can't possibly do that. 
Well, first of all, let me help some share a few tips. I use raised beds. Not everything grows in raised beds. Some of them are row, row crops in the ground. But I also have fruit trees. And last year, I harvested 25 pounds of cherries, 35 pounds of plums, and more than 100 pounds of apples. I also have kiwis and grapes. I've grown corn and artichokes. But one of the things that's in the book is how you grow with perennials. And perennials are those plants that you put in the ground and just walk away. They just grow. And the walking onions, which are a heritage plant in Butch Cove that I grow, <clears throat> and, and, and other things like French sorrel, which is a lovely cooking and salad herb, or uh, asparagus, or rhubarb, or those things that grow year after year after year, are, are they save you a lot of work, you know, and they deliver lovely food. But um, I have chapters in this book about every kind of thing that you would plant and grow, except I made a big mistake. I left out the turnips. I'm sorry, folks. I forgot about the turnips. I'll put them into the second edition. But I've got salad greens and cooking greens and herbs and uh, pumpkins and nightshades, the potatoes and tomatoes and eggplants, asparagus, artichokes, fruit, nuts, vines, wild plants in the garden, and chapters about the garden year and about the basic principles of how you grow without using uh, a lot of chemical fertilizers or pesticides, which is my the direction I'm moving in. Well, yeah. uh, so it's all in the book. I'm also yeah. getting more interested in probably going to foray into foraging one of these days. I heard a good show about it the other day. Dan, before I get to the news, congratulations on the book, The Where the Wind for Thank the Launch. Thank you so much. Uh, and so that'll be tomorrow night from 6 to 8 at the Botanical Garden. And for those looking for the book, you can find it online from Boulder. It's at Elaine's Books on Duckworth Street and at bookshops right across the province. It's called Sun, Seed, and Soil. I appreciate the time and good luck with it all, Dan. Thanks. Oh, I appreciate you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to begin the next hour with Jeff Loader. He's the executive director with the Association of Seafood Producers, and then tons of time for you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour. Line number one. Say good morning to the executive director with the Association of Seafood Producers. That's Jeff Lauder. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, sir. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. So here we are in the second last day of the snow crab season, albeit a delayed and somewhat chaotic season. Uh, where are we with the total lava catch? Will every ounce of it be landed? No. Uh, we're probably going to end up somewhere around 95 to 96% of the overall quota landed, which will, which means that uh, roughly approximately $20 million of, of value, raw material value, uh, so the money that would be paid to harvesters is being left in the water. And uh, approximately, you know, when you, after you make a few assumptions on yield and, and where the market is, you know, somewhere around 35 to $38 million worth of value uh, lost to the market uh, because of the delay but as you said it was uh, it's been a chaotic year i don't think uh, anyone thought that we could uh, process this much crab uh, this year so uh, one of the reasons i'm calling in today is to to send a, a very deep uh, 
uh, and meaningful thank you to all plant workers in this province. And on behalf of all of our members, we're very grateful. And uh, they deserve a lot of gratitude for what they had to do this year uh, to get that amount of product processed, working at a pace that, uh, you know, was just incredible. And, uh, you know, it needs to be recognized that there was an impact, uh, you know, on their lives. Uh, working, you know, that type of pace, you know, a shift a day in many cases. You know, we had numerous plants doing two, eight, nine, ten-hour shifts a day, seven days a week. Other plants were running one shift seven days a week. There were a couple of plants that didn't operate on Sundays, but this went on for an incredible long period of time uh, when, uh, you know, it didn't need to happen. So, uh, you know, there's a a big thank you needed uh, to the people who made it happen, and uh, we're very grateful for that. Like I even hear our sea quota, Robin Quinlan, uh, the president of Quinlan Brothers, obviously, 10 million pounds of crab. They never shut down the plant for a minute over the course of 12 weeks. It's good that the work is getting done, but what concern? do you and the people you represent have about, you know, people working at that pace for days after day, people with no days off since May, four days off since May. It's a potentially dangerous work environment in the first place. So as much as they would be uh, deemed to be an important linchpin of the industry, and some people will call them uh, performing heroic or uh, superhuman over the course of this uh, past 12 weeks, but this is not sustainable, is it? No, it's not sustainable. It's absolutely not sustainable. And it's not the way the system is designed to work. We have fisheries scheduled based on ecological and stock conditions, uh, as well as uh, other conditions related to when uh, uh, it is the safest to fish, when it is the most opportune to sell those products into the market. And when you have a year where that doesn't occur as it's supposed to occur, uh, and it's stated clearly in the Act, uh, uh, the Fish Collective Bargaining Act, that there can't be a cessation of business operations. And that occurred this year, and it put, uh, uh, and that is why, Patty, when this started, ASP went out publicly and put out these consequences so people understood what could happen. And, uh, you know, this was a situation where, because you, uh, of the um, decision of, of, of the FFAW to delay the snow crab fishery, where you had other fisheries coming in, when the, normally when the crab fishery wouldn't have occurred, there was, you know, uh, all of our members gave employees an opportunity, you know, um, to make a choice to work as much as they wanted. Uh, and most workers uh, took, you know, advantage of the hours to get their hours and things like that. But you're absolutely correct this is not sustainable and the reason uh, we sent a letter to the FFAW two weeks ago asking and we this was a just not a request this was our formal notice under the act and master collective agreement to start negotiations on September 12th is to avoid this situation and one of the things that you know I don't think uh, is discussed enough openly and publicly is that this isn't just about price it deals with all conditions of sale. So when we talk about uh, having final offer arbitration to set a price, final offer arbitration is a, a method to uh, um, and a system that was originally designed to encourage discussions, and in this case, bargaining around the conditions of sale. Price is included in that, but it's also about how you come, you know, arrive at a price. And that includes market considerations and what the value you can actually get in the market, but it all equally deals with things such as quality, grading of crab, 
we have, you know, lobster as an example. There's no quality protocols for lobster. There's no grading of lobster. Not all lobster comes in in the same condition. So what has been happening for way too long is discussions would start after Christmas, you know, you get into February, and just by the timing of the issues, there was no time to deal with the full range of issues that need to be dealt with. Um, ASP is committed to finding a way forward. Uh, We did uh, come to some, you know, it's a very basic type of formula uh, this year on snow crab where there would be incremental increases on the price relative to one particular market indicator. Um, But we need to get back to the table and look at all of the issues around each of of the different species. And one of the things that I, I think should be put out there, and this is why I'm going to put it out there, is while it's very easy to criticize the system and blame the system, and in this case, final offer arbitration. Final offer arbitration this year led to nine agreements between ASP and the FFAW, handshake agreements, the most in the history of collective bargaining in this province related to setting of fish prices. There was only four decisions of the panel. Three went, uh, three ASP offers were selected, one FFAW. The issue is that we need two parties to sit down and work through these issues in a transparent way and uh, try to come up with solutions. Um, You know, there's always a need to continue to look at the system that we have and whether it is final offer arbitration and maybe should that be tweaked. I mean, we went through that last year. There was an independent, very qualified chairperson uh, selected. Uh, it was a very much an evidence-based panel this year, based on you know affidavits, financial information. Um, so when I hear people say the system is broken, I think it would be good for everyone to uh, uh, look internally and to start focusing on how we, as the two stakeholders here, primary stakeholders, subject to the Act, come together to address the issues we need to address. The more value that's created, the more money there will be for everyone. Well, I mean, in the final price arbitration, even the panel said this year that that's probably not the right price, but with uh, no opportunity to pick, you know, somewhere in between two offerings, came down to 220. Now, as of Sunday, I think it was 260 a pound. Is there not a potential tweak available such as this? A defined market percentage to one side or another. You know, whether it's never going to be 50-50, but would that take away some of the squabbling about what the market can bear? Because if the market is paying X and the harvesters get this percentage and the processors get that percentage annually and just go from there, is that even a manageable approach? Patty, ASP made numerous offers to the FFAW in writing doing exactly what you said this year prior to the panel. We were working on it for two months. And those formulas that we offered at that time, based on exactly what you said, third-party independent assessment uh, to get come up with a a good proxy of what the market is paying, we have that for certain species right now, Uh, and they, they were rejected. So, you know, you're absolutely correct. That's what a formula should do. Uh, We made offers related to that. Um, But what came back to ASP were offers that were completely outside the range of what the market could pay, which the market has proven this year. 
when the panel made its decision, it was roughly 570 U.S. sooner vary for 5.8 ounce sections. That was, the, and we agreed to use that as a proxy. There was issues with that proxy, but nevertheless, we agreed to use it, and the price dropped considerably down to around 470, and now it's just got back to where it was. And, uh, you know, what was coming to, to ASP and to our members as a formula solution was not a solution. Uh, there's no question that a formula that shares the actual value created in the market is the way forward. Um, and we have to go into that process at the beginning of September and get that done this fall. So next year, uh, plant workers are not in the position they were in this year. Producers have a better understanding of the risk. Uh, the system as it's designed right now and uh, is effectively uh, putting the majority of the risk onto producers who have to pay a certain price at the wharf. And any risk along the economic chain afterwards, uh, after that point, is with producers. So these need these things need to be recognized. But absolutely, I mean, we we made offers, significant offers that we, uh, equaled what we ended up with to the FFAW, uh, you know, long before there was any final offer arbitration this year. So you know, the market is not only price per pound, but it's appetite for. You know, there was issues last year with the softening white tablecloth market in the states, which I believe is the primary home for our snow crab. Then was Russian crab and the Japanese market. So we caught what we could, we processed what was landed, but we d- didn't necessarily sell it all last year. But, you know, so, uh, X percentage ended up or uh, remained in cold storage. What's the market look like for not only the price per pound, but actually people buying it? So, you know, a lot of that inventory has been moved. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, I don't think there's very much left now. But, of course, it was a difficult situation. When uh, producers last year paid over $7 a pound and could not get that back in the market, uh, you, you were put into a difficult spot. And as this year came on, now you had new crab. And obviously, people would prefer a crab right out of the water versus what's, you know, even though it has a two-year uh, shelf life in cold storage. Uh, um, and, and, you know, it, that introduces various sort of, you know, there are, you know, in between intermediaries who, you know, buy crab and then try to resell it. There's a whole reality out there that impacts and puts a lot of risk uh, on producers. Uh, the market has rebounded, I, I, but by rebounded, I mean it is stabilized to back to what it has traditionally been. Uh, this year is significantly better than last year, obviously from a from a producer perspective. But it hasn't been, you know, uh, uh, like winning the lottery or anything. We're just getting back to where uh, prices normally are, where you can have some predictability. You can, uh, you know, develop your business plan. You can, you know, you know, do the things you have to do as a business, and you can, uh, you know. Uh, but the biggest issue, uh, you know, imagine your your business. And you're trying to uh, um, set up your plan for next year. You want to work with your customers. And you have no idea if you're really even going to have any product. And that goes to your earlier point. Uh, a couple of things back inside the plant. So the plants themselves. Uh, rate of pay. We know it's an aging workforce inside the fish plants right across the province. And there's loopholes in the Labor Act, which says that regardless of what you're being paid per hour, there's the opportunity for employers to pay uh, overtime, time and a half on minimum wage. Is that what happens in your plants? Uh, so individual, you know, uh, uh, uh pay scales and HR issues for individual plants are, you know, that's outside the scope of, uh, of ASP, Patty, to be very frank with you. Uh, 
so it wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment on anything that's going on between you know a particular plant or a particular company and, and, and uh, its particular wor- wor- workforce. Um, I just make a general point though that you know the more money that uh, uh, or more value that can be created by our fish by our fisheries, which belongs to the people of this province, that money needs to be spread across the industry in an appropriate way. And and uh, you know I'm uh, confident that that's uh, the same attitude as uh, that all of our members have. Yeah, and I guess I can ask the individual processors themselves because that's a problem yeah. for labor, regardless if we're talking your industry or otherwise. You know, time and half should be based on what get paid an hour, not time and a half on minimum wage. Uh, last one. There was a, a conversation I had with Greg Pretty at the FFAW regarding the numbers of grievances at the Royal Greenland operations in St. Anthony, St. Anthony Seafood, talking about unsafe conditions, the lack of morals and ethical manner with which the uh, workers are being treated. Would you like to comment on it? What's your role in dealing with these types of broad stroke issues? So, the, I mean, there's no role for ASP to to dealing with individual member plants and their relationship with the, you know with a collective bargaining unit uh, there. Uh, so, I, I'm I'm not passing any comment uh, on that, Patty. That's uh, there are questions for Royal Greenland and for the FFAW. Last one, I, th- I thought that was the last one, but this is so. People fishing for cod have had a hard time selling it. Some plant owners have actually said to cod harvesters that, well, you don't have a crab license that sells to us, and consequently I'm not buying your cod. I know some of this might have been created by the six-week tie-up and what have you, but what's the message to harvesters, especially those catching cod, that can't find a place to sell it? So, uh, well, well a couple of, I think, you know, important, you know, factors that need to be <laughs> considered when, you know, in, in answering that question. One is... There were plants this year that could not buy cod because they could not set up their line because they didn't have the workforce to do it. They didn't have the capacity to do it because they had to set up equipment and different things. That led to situations where uh, uh, cod could not be purchased. Uh, and, and individual producers have that right, just like individual harvesters have a right to sell their product to, to whoever they want. So I, I think that's you know uh, an important point here. But what you're talking about is one of the issues that needs to be addressed this fall through collective bargaining. We cannot have a system set up when a fishery opens that everybody who fishes got to have that very first day have uh, have a right to sell all of their product on that on that day. That is what kind of occurred this year in, in numerous ways. And with no capacity to do it, and I know what some people will say, which is, well, we need more capacity. If we developed all the capacity that would be required to follow the schedule of harvesters, and this year proved it on crab. We have, there were plants that didn't run two shifts this year on crab because they didn't have the temporary foreign workers and didn't have the labor force. But we could have even produced more crab this year. We need to work together to come up with the best way to have a scheduled fishery to create value and work through those issues. Do you think it's fair business practice, though, for a processor to say, well, you don't have a crab license with us, and so for that reason, harvesters tell me that they were unable to sell the cod to that processor. Should that be a fair business practice approach? Because if you've had a long-running relationship with someone who's catching cod, but because all of a sudden they don't have a crab license that they sell crab to that plant, they're rejecting the cod. Your, your thoughts? Well, so, uh, look, I, I, I don't have any information in front of me uh, related to that type of situation. 
uh, and it's really not my place to comment on. You know, that's an unsubstantiated potential issue that you heard. Uh, you know, our members are, did their very best this year to operate fairly. Uh, and if you think about where we were to in the crab fishery uh, and th there was a need for a scheduled, organized fishery, and members pulled that off. And all the inshore fleet caught a majority of the crab and all the offshore fleet caught a majority of their quota, despite the fact that ASP was being accused when the fishery started of prioritizing one fleet over another. None of that was true, and it didn't happen. So our members are working very hard to be fair to to everyone and operate, you know, consistent with good business practices. And I don't, uh, you know, evidence to the, to the contrary uh, uh, doesn't really exist. I appreciate the time this morning, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Have Thank a good day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Jeff Loader, Executive Director with ASP. That's the Association of Seafood Producers. Let's take a break. Do not go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the executive director at the Mount Pearl Paradise Chamber of Commerce. That's Wanda Palmer. Good morning, Wanda. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. Nice to hear from you. How are you? Good, good, good. So I wanted to let your listeners know about an exciting job fair one week from today. So the Mount Pearl Paradise Chamber of Commerce were holding a job fair at the Reed Center in Mount Pearl. So that's next Wednesday from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. on September 6th. And we have over 30 companies looking for workers. So it's a great opportunity for people looking for a new job or a career change. And, of course, it's free for everyone to attend. Got anything that would suit me? We sure do. we got <laughs> companies galore. Uh, BOCM actually have a table. That could be good for you. Uh, okay, good. Wanda, well, so you know, there's a radio uh, presence with VOCM. Give us an idea of some other companies and the type of jobs that will be recruited at this job fair. Okay, so we have uh, companies such as Roth Loxton, uh, Paladin. Security, Army Reserves, Trades NL. We have uh, Tim Hortons, Good Life Fitness. Um, let me see. Visions, Pal Airlines, O'Neill Auto Group, the City of Mount Pearl, and the Town of Paradise. It's like it's 30 companies. So for anyone who's interested at all, I would suggest they went. They go to our Facebook page, which will list all the companies that have tables. So we sold out right away. Like as soon as we put this up. Companies just jumped on. Right. There's jobs out there. I mean, we hear lots of concerns, and the unemployment numbers in this area have come way down province-wide, less than they were in the past. So there is opportunity out there. Uh, and we'll get the details one more time about the job fair before we say goodbye, but what's the thought in and around? Because you represent a couple of different uh, interesting communities here, Mount Pearl and Paradise. So Mount Pearl decided to go it alone with the concept of regional economic development, and that was at the 11th hour, but Paradise is in. So how's that working inside the chamber? So for the chamber, well, I must say, like, even the issue with Mount Pearl is accepted throughout. We just had an event recently with the Board of Trade, with the Chamber of um, CBA, uh, Conception Bay Area, and us, and it was all on collaboration with all of the mayors. Everyone, they're all on the same wavelength, no matter if they're in or they're out. Same with our members. I mean, we also have members that are in St. John's and in, outside 
the community totally. But, um, yeah, so to them, we all have the same issues, or they all have the same issues. They're looking for people to hire. People can't keep staff. And then you hear from the people, of course, that there's no jobs there. Well, you know what? 30 tables at this job fair will let you know that there's lots of jobs out there. There is. And inside communities like the ones you represent, Paradise in particular, quickest growing community in Atlantic Canada. It's good news when you look at it from 100,000 feet above sea level, but it also comes with potential issues with economic growth, uh, equaling population growth, equaling the opportunity to satisfy the needs of the residents and the business community. So are there conversations inside the chamber about pace of growth? Because it just feels good and it sounds so good, but it comes up with some potential pitfalls. Well, it's always issues when you grow so fast as well, and we know that, yep. right? Whether it's trying to get people to fill jobs, trying to get people, tra- housing, we know how important housing is right now. So all those, I mean, there are issues for all our members, for not just our members, for all businesses in the community. And this this job fair is not just our members that are attending. It's it's open to all businesses. So we look at our members, yes. I mean, they're a priority, but the business community in, uh, or the business community in all areas are people we look out for, people we want to help. And as you should. So what should people bring along if they're interested in attending tomorrow? Well, glad you asked. No, not tomorrow. Oh, no, sorry. That nope. just popped out of my That's mouth. That's okay. It's next Wednesday, right. September 6th. But um, bring along your resumes. But we also have Inclusion NL there with the booth. And they're going to be doing career counseling. They're going to be doing resume building. So anyone going who needs assistance with that, we have that there for you as well. But come, bring a resume. Uh, like I said, we have everything from O'Neill Motors to... Colleges, Key and College, uh, Compassion Home Care, like it's almost every sector that you can think of that we're covering. Trades, we have trades, hospitality, Newfoundland is there. We have hotels there, restaurants. So, yeah, come bring your resume and just take your time. Go around to all the booths and see what they have to offer. I think uh, I think people will be pleasantly surprised. It's a varied offering, that's for sure. I th- appreciate you telling us about it, Wanda. Thanks for your time this morning. Good luck with the event and say hello to your family for me. Hi, sir. Well, thanks, Patty. Take care. You too, Wanda. Bye-bye. Wanda Palmer, Executive Director of Mount Pearl Paradise Chamber of Commerce. Let's go to line number four. Greg, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Uh, pretty good. I'd like to I'd like to speak about something in terms of wind hydrogen conversion there. Sure. Uh, there's a whole sure. there's a whole bunch of projects now that have been proposed for the province. Um, I'm a little bit of a little bit of a doubter, I have to admit. Um, because I, I really want to see a federal environmental assessment on this. Uh, and there's a few reasons why. And, and listening to Krista Freeland um, the other day sort of promotes me to, to say this, right? Uh, because, I mean, first time I heard of this term, uh, optimism bias, uh, was from the uh, LeBlanc inquiry on the uh, Muskrat Falls issue. And what I'm hearing now is almost the same as what I was hearing from uh, Ed Merton, uh, Danny Williams, Jerome Kennedy 10 years ago in terms of Muskrat Falls. We have optimism bias at the political level big time here. And I think that we need to we need to slow down a little and we need to have a good public debate about this. I mean, there are a few reasons for that. I mean, well, first of all, let me let me make this clear. I'm not against windmills. Uh, but when you try to crowd like 164 of them onto the little port of Port Peninsula, then that gets pretty questionable. 
first of all. Secondly, um, we need to have a wider public debate about uh, rare earth minerals that's going to go into the electrolyzers for the uh, hydrogen. Uh, we need to have a big debate about what we're going to do with these windmill, these, these windmill blades uh, that we have to dispose of in 15 to 20 years. So, and there's really not much public discussion going on about this. There's a, a provincial assessment which isn't working very well. Uh, and my understanding is that the uh, environmental group out on the port of port has asked the uh, federal uh, minister, Minister Guibault, uh, to do a federal assessment. And we won't know about that until the 3rd of October. So I'd like for people to um, please write Minister Guibault and ask for a proper assessment uh, for what's going to go on. We're stepping into we're stepping into a big void here that we're really not too certain about. I'm not so sure how different a federally led or guided environmental assessment would look like. To be honest with you, I mean, in the, inside the impacted impact assessment agency of Canada, they've never had to evaluate anything like this, so they'd be coming at it as green as we are. I would think. Uh, okay, okay. So let me let me let me see if I can if I can clarify this a little because I have a fair bit of experience. In no problem. Go ahead environmental assessment so the provincial process um uh first of all the provincial uh, process even though it's not too bad of a process uh it's only giving us uh, 50 days now to examine a 41 100 page mm -hmm. uh series of documents so so that's a that's a big issue within those documents there's a whole lot of stuff that the general public does not understand so we have no access to funding no access to expertise in order to examine these documents. If it were a federal assessment, and I've been through a few, including the Muscat Falls uh, issue, uh, there there is uh, access to funds uh, for the public to actually speak to uh, uh, their own experts or experts worldwide and get their opinion. So the difference is, is between a Volkswagen, shall we say, and a Mercedes-Benz a little bit, right? Uh, because the federal assessment is much more thorough, it's more lengthy, and it covers, uh, you know, deeper, deeper issues. So that's the difference. Uh, fair enough. And I don't even know what the starting point. Look, and you said the general public, for the vast majority of us, don't have the technical chops to absorb everything in those documents. I guarantee you, I don't. And I gave it a shot. And I got partway through an initial skim thinking, I'm not going to glean much from this because I really don't know what a lot of this means. So that's fair enough. The 50-day time frame for public uh, reaction or a comment is very, very tight, given exactly what you just said and what I just reiterated. One thing that I I'm curious about your thoughts on optimism bias. When we talked about Muskrat Falls, it was, I think, a different conversation because it was for domestic use, primarily. It was, we were the only customer versus the 20 to 22 or 23 percent that were flowing over to Amera across the Maritime Link. So the optimism bias there was that we would have an increased demand for electricity. Consequently, there was a need for 846 megawatts for Muskrat Falls versus World Energy GH2 in particular. It's not for domestic use at all. So the optimism might be in John Risley's office and doesn't have a big impact on me, my bottom line, the cost of my electricity, once we figure out the implications with our own grid. So so is optimism bias different for Muskrat than it is for this? Because I'm not the consumer. I don't have to buy his product. Okay, well, let, let me just, uh, let me just, it's, uh, it's an extremely uh, complex issue. For example, uh, there's been a request to the PUB to have a, a grid tie-in, um, number one. 
which means that at the beginning of the project, my understanding is that they are going to be tied into the grid for X number of uh, megawatts in order to get started out there. Uh, number two is that uh, wind wind doesn't blow all the time, so there's got to be some kind of a a buffer in and out of of the uh, of the wind system. Uh, and I mean, I, I do think that you know a 40% tax credit, I think, does give us a very vested interest in this. So it's not it's not just the company. I think the politicians are pushing are pushing too hard. I think that I think that there needs to be a delay. I think that we need to have a full and open public discussion. I mean, let me just give you an example. Um, the 4,100 pages that the provincial provincial government are are um, promoting here now as the environmental impact statement, uh, they have been distributed uh, to, I, I think they've been distributed, to the two libraries on the port of port for example. People on the port of port haven't received paper copies of the of the impact statement yet, is my understanding. And those those two libraries are only open three days a week for four or five hours a day. So, like, people don't have access to the information either, Patty. The federal system will give you more access to information. Yeah, so, I mean, it's all online. But you're saying that the libraries that have it would also be the hub for people to get online connectivity as opposed to get a paper copy if that's what they choose? Is that the point that you made there, sir? I, w- I would imagine, but I mean, there are a lot of people on the Port Port Peninsula, for example, uh, who are older people who are interested in the topic and don't have computers, right? Uh, as well, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a whole lot of issues around. I mean, if you sit down in your in your space at your kitchen table or your office, you want to have paper in front of you so that you can sit down and make notes and do all those kind of things. Uh, working on a computer is not for everybody. It's for the younger generation, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I do think that uh, the proponent and and the uh, the minister's office uh, has has dropped the ball here. I I think there should have been copies of this uh, distributed throughout the province the, the the day that it was announced. We only have 50, uh, 50 days to review this. Eight days have already gone by. I haven't seen a paper copy yet, and I've requested it. So, yeah, there's issues. Uh, two very quick ones. So uh, there was mention earlier from uh, Helen Forsey about creating something like what was done with Muskrat would be the joint panel inquiry. Well, regardless of what was brought up, some of the massive concerns never got attended to. So there's sometimes, sometimes, sometimes process is as much about optics as it is about pragmatism. So number one. Number two. There feels like a different conversation about World Energy GH2 than any other proposal in the province. We've heard very little negativity from anywhere. Exploits in the Botwood operation, pattern energy out in Port of Argentia and what have you. Do you think that Mr. Risley's involvement has changed the tone of the conversation regarding World Energy GH2? Because we haven't heard much in the way of negativity anywhere else. Yeah, well, and the reason for that, I think, Patty, is simply the placement of the of the turbines. I mean, what I don't understand is why the turbines couldn't have been placed, you know, further up the Burgio Road on the high ground up there uh, instead of crowding them onto the Port of Port Peninsula. I mean, uh, these turbines are going to be essentially over people's heads, 164 of these things. So I think that that's the reason. I mean, I think that the Botwood uh, situation and St. Lawrence and all the other ones, I think that the turbines are, are a little bit away from people and people aren't quite as concerned. I think that's the difference there. If uh, someone... Oh, sorry, pardon me. Go ahead. 
Yeah, and I also think that there are so many questions around this process. I mean, like, uh, this process, my understanding is that um, the most that energy that they've ever put into one of these electrolyzers yet is about four or five megawatts. Uh, I don't think that anybody has taken a 1,000 uh, megawatts, for example. Well, the one WEGH2 project is going to be uh, 2,000 megawatts, which is actually equal to, just barely equal to, uh, all of the grid tie in Newfoundland and Labrador. But anyway, it's a huge project. It's a mega project. And I think that we need to have a wider discussion. We have to slow it down. We have to get a federal assessment on it, Patty. Understood. If what you said about pushing it further up the Burgio Road, for someone listening to that and saying, well, is this more a thought that not in my backyard versus other concerns? Uh, well, I mean, say, I guess not in my backyard. I mean, okay, so so let's 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 say, for example, let's say, for example, that you're going to take a 164 of these uh, offshore size windmills and and put them around St. John's. I mean, it's not, you know, I I, I think that there's a time and a place for everything, and I I don't think the Port of Port Peninsula is the place for this. Fair enough, and I certainly appreciate your perspective and your thoughts this morning. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, that's about it. I just encourage everybody out there to write to Minister Gibault and ask for a, a federal assessment so that we can have a, a much uh, much more in-depth debate about this. I mean, the rare earth minerals issue is big. Uh, you know, plutonium, iridium, all those things have to be used in these electrolyzers. There's a whole bunch of rare earth minerals to be used in in all the processes here. And I think we have to have a bigger, um, a much bigger discussion on this. Well, once Minister Parsons uh, speaks to the media coming up at one, and we will be there, there'll probably be a little bit more detail, a uh, bit more, hopefully a bit more understanding about what's going on and the, what stage any of these processes are at. And we'll try to get him on the show tomorrow to speak to some of the concerns that you and others have voiced. And I appreciate the time, Greg. Okay, uh, thank thank you, Patty, and uh, I just hope that uh, Minister Parsons doesn't express too much optimism bias. I, I wish he'd be a little tiny bit cautious. Thanks for this. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome, Greg. Bye bye. All right, there we go. Final break of the morning. When we come back, uh, maybe Kelly is there to tell us about something that she's dealing with with a lost animal. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Hello. Let's go. Line number two. Jason, you're on. Uh, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Patty? Okay, you. Not too bad. Um, uh, first time caller. Um, I'm calling more or less uh, for an opinion. Um, I'm currently dealing with um, a medical uh, dental situation. Um, I was at. The, um, I always thought um, it was. I always thought it was a given that if you go somewhere and you need something done, like and, and it's obvious that where you're to, you need medical attention. Um, that. They, and they pointed out and actually see it that like the dentist uh, it was the dentist actually I'm not going to name names or nothing like that but um, they got me to fill out the form and you know uh, then when I filled out the form they told me that it's not a walking clinic but I've been there before and they said that where I missed my appointment they said that I wasn't a patient but and then they ended up telling me I had to leave and go to the to, to the hospital and wait uh, and I went to the health science they told me is it, is it two, more or less a two day wait so like what do you do? Well I mean for the most part dentists will make uh, make exceptions Thank for you. people with emergencies so I've never exactly. really heard of, I'm sorry go ahead 
No, no, I cut you off, Paddy. Uh, I was just saying exactly like what you said, like making an exception. Like uh, I wasn't just someone like walking off the street. I was there before. I just missed my appointment, and like, and they were kind of giving me attitude because like I'm, I, I'm, um, I, I'm on the methadone program and stuff. And when you fill out the sheet, they ask you what uh, medications you're on and stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, when I fill out the sheet, is like when they looked at it, is like everything went hey, is like you. Know, uh, I don't know what word to put there, Patty, but um, it, it was uncalled for. Like my, my, I had a big abscess in my mouth. You know, I, I'm I'm doing very well. I have a job. I, I clean up my life. But like I always thought that the, the people in need of a mental or sorry, dental um, or anything for that matter, that they had to see you. Well, I don't know if they have to do anything because, of course, they're private contractors. But I would think and I hope that you weren't discriminated against because you're on methadone because people on methadone in large part are trying to clean up their act. So, Oh, absolutely. And and, and I think that I I get it a lot, to be honest with you. And and a lot of people don't bring it up because – but that's not what I'm talking about. It's just that I I think they didn't see me. And now I'm here with a big ball on on my – on my uh, cheek and I don't, I don't know what to do I don't know where to go like they, they told me to, they let me walk out the door like you know the dentist was there just finished with the patient seeing me all I needed was antibiotics Patty. and they wouldn't give it to, and they told me I couldn't get it like they wanted me to go to health science for two days basically a two day wait they were, that's what they told me are you willing to call another dentist's office close by and see if they're able to treat an emergency case well, like I yours I was just on the way out the door to do that and um, to, to try another dentist and uh, I heard that you had a couple minutes left and I called and you know so I was calling just to see your opinion on it you know well I think the, you know mercy should be attended to by healthcare professionals well, let me say that much so but what I want you to do Jason whether it be send me an email later on today or what have you but let me know if you get the help you need if not we'll try again Okay. Um. Yeah. You can. Uh, you. You. You can do what, anything at all to help. That'd be great. But. Um. I. I just didn't think that they were people like dental, uh, dental or, or or doctors' office. Like if you walk in and, and say it's the same situation. If I walked in, my arm was tore open or something, and they told me, "No, we can't see her. You got to go to the hospital." Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm familiar with dental issues and dental pain. So, but what I want you to do is see if another dentist will treat you. I. Think think they should treat emergencies as they appear regardless of who they are whether or not they're on methadone or they're in handcuffs coming from her majesty's penitentiary it's healthcare. exactly so i appreciate the time and let I, me know i'm well dressed patty i'm clean about myself and everything and i felt that i was just discriminated because once i filled out that sheet the medications i was on and stuff yeah uh, and i know very well right now and it's just i felt like i was discriminated I hope that's yeah. not the case, but it sounds like it might very well be. Good luck this exactly. afternoon. Let me know how you make out. I've got to run, Jason. I'm after 12 o'clock, but let me know how you make out. All right, I will. Okay. I'll call tomorrow. All right, all the best. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.